Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, our last sermon of this series, The Big Reveal. And today we're going to be reading the mail that Jesus had for the church in Laodicea. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. Here's what a word of God says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Or that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Now realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. God, would you speak through me today? God, would you prepare the soil of our hearts to receive your word because you have a word for each one of us. Lord, we want to submit to you. Humble ourselves to hear from your truth. Open our eyes today, God, so that we can behold the wondrous things that you have hidden in your word. So God, consecrate me. Set me apart for your word. Help me to preach in such a way that I will be lowered, but Christ will be elevated. Would you get glory both in this physical place, in every crevice of our hearts? And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we continue our, our, uh, our sermon series, uh, we've been opening up the mail for every church. And uh, we've, been have, we've gone through six out of seven. And today we'll be on our seventh one. If you remember, the first church was the church of Ephesus. It was the Bible-believing, uh, biblically sound, doctrinally conservative church. You can get... They lack the love for God and lack the love for others. And so to that church, Jesus said, Ephesus says, you need to love. Then we go to the second church. It was the church of Smyrna. It was that 1040 window church that is in the middle uh, of where persecution was severe. And to that church, there were absolutely no uh, rebuke. All Jesus brought was comfort and Jesus encouraged them to stay faithful. 
And then we got another church after that, the church of Pergamum. Each one of these churches are along the major trade route. The third church we restudied was the church of Pergamum. Church of Pergamum was the compromising church. They were that part, a college campus church that uh, on during the daytime people were were serving the Lord, reaching out, doing a lot of programs. But but in at nighttime and in their own privacy, they were tolerating sins that were going on. They were partying it up as if they can separate faith, uh, uh, spiritual life, and their daily life. And to that, the, uh, Jesus said to them, "You need to think." about what is what you're reading. Think about your life. To the church Thyatira, which is similar to the church of Pergamum, it was the compromising church. It was that liberal uh, church with theology that is loosely held, but they do a whole lot of social and love, uh, action of love to the community. They were known for the progressive work. Yet Jesus called that church to live closely by my word. A couple of weeks ago, we visited the church of Sardis. It was a church that a big church, popular church, that it was known for being alive, but really inward, inwardly they were asleep. And Jesus said to that church, wake up. Don't live on your reputation. Live for me today. And last week, we went to the uh, Philadelphia the church in Philadelphia, it was the church that, again, just like Smyrna, that has no uh, weakness, uh, no, no negative rebuke. It was the church that, it was that poor church in the storefront church that barely can make rent. And yet they held fast to the name of Jesus. They held fast to the promises of God. And Jesus encouraged them to hold, continue to hold tight to my promises to you. Run that last hundred meter with great faithfulness. And finally, today we visit the church of Laodicea. The last church, if the Ephesus was that big church with vibrant program, Laodicea is similar to that church. It would be, have been the suburban church, the church that is filled with upper middle class, upper class. They have the great building, the great program. They were sufficient in both their material funds, but they're also sufficient in of themselves. Laodicea is that church that think that there are something because they don't need anything. But in reality, Jesus condemned them and rebuked them for being good for nothing. And what they really need is to make Jesus their everything. They live in this lies that think that they don't need anything, they don't need anyone. Because they have all these things with them. But Jesus said, you're actually good for nothing until you make Jesus your everything. Just a little background for you and Laodicea. Laodicea is well known for several things. Four things primarily. One, they were known for their wealth. They were one of the uh, uh, the, the city that are with great commerce. There are a lot of wealth, as we read from the scripture here. They're rich. They're prosperous. So that was the first thing. But not only are they wealthy, they are also very healthy. They were, a lo- they were located uh, one of the greatest medicine school at the time in, 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 in back then in, in Asia Minor. Particularly, they were expert in creating, inventing this salve, this lotion for eye, for the eye disease. And so they were well known for being health- wealthy and healthy. 
but they were also very successful in the textile industry. They were well known for making these black uh, wool that is supposed to be represented. The, the, the hipster will wear those, clothes, those black wool. They were the ones that were well known, uh, famous people, upper class people will wear these black wool to show off their status. So not only are they wealthy, they're healthy, they have status. They were famous for all those things, but one thing they were famous, or I should say infamous for, is their water. See, Laodicea was one of three cities on this Lycus River Valley. And they, while they're living in, uh, along the river, the, river uh, the water there was so polluted that they cannot actually drink the water. So instead, they need, the Roman government needs to bring these, uh, build this uh, aqueduct to bring water into neighboring town, into the place of Laodicea. So they're known for all three of those things, and yet the water seems to be an issue there. And so with that background, I want us to go back to the text here and read, and hopefully give us some idea, some, some more information why Jesus was being so harsh to them. What was Jesus really putting his finger onto this church? Hopefully by now you're familiar with the format of these letters. Jesus began in verse 14. He says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, Jesus writing this letter, he says this, Identify himself, these qualities about Jesus, who is pertinent to some of the things that they struggle with, the things that Jesus rebuked them for later. Jesus called, says this, write this, he says, The words of, of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Three things we know here. Jesus called himself the Amen. It's not just a tag on at the end of our, our prayer, as some, sometimes my kids think. We, we just say Amen. It's almost like the word please, then you get whatever you want. Amen actually is, is the quality of God that, that he's faithful, he's reliable, he's truthful. And that's what Jesus said, I am that faithful and true witness that Jesus is the ultimate um, witness against or for what we have done. That phrase, I know your works, here Jesus is pointing it out that while you may have a certain view of yourself, I am ultimately the witness for you or against you. Because I know everything that you're going through. I know everything that you have done, both outwardly and inwardly. And it is against that background that Jesus preceded the letter personally to the church of Laodicea. If you remember last week, we talked, I I made the observation that there are two of the greatest churches among these seven actually uh, have have Laodicea and Sardis actually had no um, commendation by Jesus. But the two seemingly weakest and most feeble churches actually have nothing negative said about them. Both Smyrna and uh, both Smyrna and also Philadelphia. They appear to be weak on the outside, yet Jesus commended them fully and encouraged them. And the two churches, Sardis and, and Laodicea, are supposed to be great on the outside, yet Jesus had nothing good to say about them. Because when we read verse 15, Jesus said this, I know your works. And there's nothing positive said about Laodicea. Some people argue Laodicea actually might have been the worst church among the seven. I'll leave that for you to decide. But Jesus said this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were not either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Jesus condemned them for being lukewarm. They were not hot. They were not cold. You know what lukewarmness is? Lukewarmness is what the kids like to say, eh. They're kind of meh. I'm okay. Not that bad, but I'm not that good. Lukewarmness has to do with, I, I, I'm kind of cruising. I'm kind of stagnant. I'm kind of on autopilot cruise control. I, I think of lukewarmness as like your phone when you put on airplane mode. You know, when you put on airplane mode, you neither are sending things out or receiving anything back in. You literally just kind of exist and maintain. Nothing is coming into your life from God and nothing is going back out to God or to the people of God or to, to others. You are literally just existing, maintaining in this mode. And Jesus said, that is your problem, Laodicea. You are lukewarm. Jesus said that you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor neither cold. Many people mistakenly take this verse, meaning that, uh, thinking that what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to be either completely on fire for me or completely against me. Because that's our connotation in the spiritual language that we tend to use is that when we're hot for Jesus, that means we're on fire for him. When we're cold for Jesus, it means we completely drifted away from him. But it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, isn't it? Because why would Jesus want people to be completely cold toward him? After all, the reason why Jesus came on the cross to die for you is to rescue you from darkness into light. So it would not make a whole lot of sense for us to think, oh, Jesus said, oh, you want to be hot or cold? I don't want you to be in the middle. It means just be completely away from me or completely for me, all in or all out. See, the background of Laodicea would help us understand a little bit better what Jesus is getting at. Remember when I told you that earlier, the water was nasty in Laodicea. And so what they needed to do is, in the two surrounding towns, one in the north side is called Herapolis, and there will be aqueduct that will bring hot mineral water. Like if you've ever been to Japan or you go to hot springs, you know, people need, uh, need to relax. They have these ache, pain, joint pain. People like, oh, like me that have ache, uh, muscle pain. You go dip in that hot water, it feels instantly better. And hot water, mineral water was flowing from Heropolis all the way to Laodicea. That's the hot water he's referring to. But also there were cold water coming in to town as well. It was from Colossae, where we got the book of Colossians, right? Where the Christians lived there. Colossae, there were nice, cold, refreshing water that's flowing into the town of the city of Laodicea. But here's the problem. Both of those towns are not a walkable distance away from Laodicea. By the time the hot water gets to Laodicea, it becomes lukewarm. The nice piping hot water that soothes the muscle. Now, by the time they get to Laodicea, is just completely blah. It's good for nothing. And the cold water that was from Colossae, by the time they get to Laodicea, it becomes warm. What's cold becomes warm. What's hot becomes warm. And what Jesus is getting at here is not that I want you to be all in or all out for me. What he's pointing out is this. That the church of Laodicea do not serve any purpose whatsoever. They were good for nothing. When you are lukewarm, you might think you're okay, but it is actually good for nothing. See, a hot cup of tea is good on a nice snowy day. Right? And a cold cup of water is great after you spend hours out in the hot sun. But in both of those situations, when you bring that person a cup of lukewarm water, 
it is neither satisfying nor does it serve a purpose. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That when, when he's accusing them and condemning them for being lukewarm, he's saying, you are not serving a purpose because you are in the middle of the road. You're not, you're not serving any purpose for, for anything for me. And, and look at the response that Jesus had. He said, because they are lukewarm, because they are neither cold or, cold or hot, Look at verse 16. He said, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. When the word spit here used in the original language is not just some kind of hackalooky type of spit. It is full-on projectile, throw-up, puking all over you type of, type, type, type of word spitting. I don't claim to be an expert for many things. That would be prideful. But I think after being a father for three sons and a wife that was pregnant three times, I'm some sort of expert of puke and throw ups. I have my share of seeing just cute little baby choking up on the milk and spitting it out and it smelled decent to full on Niagara Fall throw up with solid and liquid congealed together onto the floor, onto the dining table. I've endured nights and moments when I have to clean up the, the, the throw up the pukes that either my kids had or my wife had. In fact, allow me to be a little more graphic. Uh, when I was young in grade, when I was in grade school, a friend of mine during PE raised his hand and you can see he was feeling really sick. He was all white on the skin and, and he raised his hand before he can utter the word teacher things start just coming out of his mouth. And while I, I got the lucky assignment standing next to him, he wanted to tell the teacher, I need to go to the bathroom to puke. Before he get those words out, he was puking all over me from top to bottom. And you can imagine, I was just standing there, wiping it off in the bathroom. And for the rest of the day, I smell like that throw up. I want you to get that picture. It's not just some small spit of Jesus talking about. Jesus is saying, I'm so sick. You are so nauseating to me when you are lukewarm. When you think you're doing okay, but really you're not doing okay. It's sick of me that you are not walking with me. That you think you're walking with me, but really you're not. And I want to throw up onto you when I see you. That is the picture. That's the offensive graphic picture that Jesus was painting in writing to the church of Laodicea. See, many times when we think of lukewarmness, I'm okay. But even AT&T knows enough Bible to know that just okay is not okay. And to Jesus being lukewarm is definitely not okay. Then we need to ask ourselves this question, where does this bride, beautiful bride of Christ the one that Jesus purchased with his own blood turns to become so nauseating to, to the groom that one look at, at this church, Jesus wanted to puke. I think the answer lies right here in verse 17. Jesus said this to them, to the church of Laodicea, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I want you to circle the word, the phrase, I need nothing. 
You see, what makes him so lukewarm? What caused the lukewarmness, the apathy, the half-heartedness? What brought forth to that is, has to come with this place of feeling sufficient in and of themselves. That I need nothing. The church of Laodicea thinks that they are something because they don't need anything. They don't need anything from people. They don't need anything from Jesus. In fact, in their own history, in AD 60, there, there was an earthquake. The whole town, as you heard from other cities that we've looked at, the whole town was, 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 was destroyed and the Roman government was offering imperial uh, relief help, monetary help to the city of Laodicea and they turned them down and said, we will build it up ourselves. We have enough money, we have enough resource. I will do it, we will do it ourselves. I need nothing. We got money in our banks. We got lotion that I, I sell that will heal. We got black wool for the hipsters to wear. We got, we're happy, we're healthy, we're wealthy. We are living the Laodicean dream. Doesn't that sound a little familiar to us? Think about this. We will never say this out loud. We're not going to tweet that on or put on our Instagram and say, that I don't need God. I need nothing from God. I've never seen a church that has a sign outside that says, we don't need Jesus. But how often do we live functionally like we don't need Jesus? We may never say it out loud, but in our lives, it reflects that we don't really need Jesus. After all, I have a decent paying job. Of course, I can get more money. I can use a little more, more saving. But I have enough money to buy what I like to do. I can travel the world. I can eat whatever I want. I can build the houses I want. I can buy the apartment I need. I have health insurance, medical insurance, eye insurance, life insurance, fire insurance. I have a vacation house. I have a timeshare that I can go to, to visit whenever I need a break. I have enough hobbies to keep me entertained. I'm doing quite fine without Jesus. And for many of us, myself included, a lot of times, that is just how we live. Many times we have no idea that what are, what's really missing in our lives. We are scarily happy. To live our lives day in and day out without Jesus. And the most scary thing is, we don't even bat an eye when we do that. We think that I can live through the day to get done all that I needed to do without Jesus being in my life, without his word being in my life, without the power of the Holy Spirit. I can conquer the temptation. I can conquer whatever I need to conquer because I don't need anything. That is until when our family member find out a bad diagnosis or our kids are not getting to school or I'm not getting to school that I want to or I lost my job. Then all of a sudden I sense that, oh, I do need Jesus. See, let me be clear. I don't think any of the things that I mentioned earlier is wrong in itself. Money, possessions are not wrong. I have insurances. Nothing wrong with that until those things that we have, the riches that we have, 
becomes our confidence, where we find strength, how we define success, where we look to for, for power in our world, or when those things become our identity. That what I wear really defines me, how much I make defines who I am instead of Jesus, or when it becomes an occupation. That those, uh, those, those things that we, we put our trust in becomes an occupation uh, the, to keep those things up so that I will be more happy, more confident, more successful. And when that happens, that will always lead us to become lukewarm toward Jesus. I think here's what we need to be careful of because Jesus pointed out to us one, one thing that is of great danger, particularly for those of us in the Western church and dare I say, myself and you as well, is a simple fact that blessings blind. Blessings blind. Blessings have a way of blinding us to see the blesser. When we are so focused on the gifts that he gives us, sometimes we just forget to look at the one who is the giver of these gifts. Look at verse 17 again with me. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing, being blinded to the reality of their lives is that they are wretched, they are pitiable, they are poor, they are blind, they are naked. What happened is when we are blessed, those are gifts from God. When we fix our eyes on the gifts itself, it has its way of blinding us from seeing who God is and our need for Jesus. Self-reliance always, always leads us to independence from God. Self-confidence always leads us to a lukewarmness toward Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised because the scripture was, is littered with warning against Material blessing. You see the church in Laodicea were materially rich, yet they're spiritually bankrupt. They have so much on the outside that they thought they're all that and a bag of chips. And then Jesus, no, no, no. Look at, look at who you are. You're really naked. You're wretched. You're evil. You're blind. You can't see who you really are. First Timothy chapter six. God, through the word of Paul, says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Matthew chapter 13, the fourth soil, parable, the four soils. We know the third soil, soil, it says that the one that chokes out the thorns, chokes out why? What was the thorn? It says it was the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that choked the word out of us. See, blessings blind us from seeing our need for Jesus and his word. And, and I want to turn particularly to Amos chapter 16. As I was meditating on this verse, it just grieved me to see myself and perhaps many of us who in the Western world, unfortunately, being a fulfillment of the condemn, uh, that, that this word of God is condemning us, not just in the past of Zion, but now to us. Verse six, uh, Amos chapter six, verse one says this, woe to those who are at east in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. Verse four. 
Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches, who eat lambs from the flock, cast from the midst of the stall, and who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, annoy themselves with the finest oil. Here's the kicker. But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Here's a prophet, Amos, God speaking through him, saying how easy it is that we live, that we are so at ease in our lives, that we come to church, pay our deal for an hour, 15 minutes, we give a little offering, we get some friends in our church, we sprinkle some Jesus to wash our, our guilty soul, and then we return back home and do the same thing over and over again, that I need nothing, I need no Jesus But slowly and surely, our love, our passion, and our zeal become lukewarm, apathetic toward God. And our relationship with Jesus is just a habit. It's just a checklist, a routine, a family tradition It's just an appointment I need to make. Blessings blind us. And I'm concerned that living in a wealthy, affluent society, in a a society that we can get anything we want, that we can easily be blinded from seeing our ultimate lead. Because Jesus said, while they have a lot of things, they're good for nothing. And what they really need, the Odyssea, what I really need is to make Jesus our everything. Verse 18 says this. Go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. It says, Jesus counseling the, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may be seen and salve to annoy your eyes so that you may see Jesus is calling them back. You, while you may think you're rich, I alone can give you the gold refined by fire. I alone can give you eternal riches. While you can have the ointment to heal your eye sickness, I alone can actually help you see. You have eyes that can't see what is going on. But if blessings have blinded you. And Jesus said, I have clothes to give you, let you wear the white garment that will usher you in heaven, that will be the sign that you have been washed over and imputed with the righteousness of Christ, you're going to get that in your black wool, the one that you are so well known for. And one of the things we've learned through this season of COVID is how things can be taken away from us like that. We feel deeply the transient nature of earthly things. And Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, great, those blessings I've given you, great, you have all those things, riches, status, health. Yet none of those things are guaranteed for eternity. Only Christ alone will last forever. And so the church of Laodicea, Jesus told them, speak to them, stop relying on yourself. When you relied on yourself, you will become half-hearted toward me. When you trust in your resource, trust in your, your, your ability, your possessions, it will always cause you to be independent from me. 
And what you need to do is to come back to the very one who can give you everlasting life. Here's an amazing, amazing thing as I look through these, every one of these letters. Just the intensity of grace that Jesus had for these churches. Even for this prodigal church that Jesus wanted to puke at. Jesus said, I love you. And I'm here to bring you back. Look at verse uh, verse 19, chapter 3. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Jesus is not done with them. Jesus is not saying, you are so sick to my stomach that I don't want nothing to do with you. He said, I want to puke you up, but, but you know what? You are still the one that I love. I still love you. That's why I discipline you. That's why, that's why I reprove you, rebuke you. Any, any parents among us know that is a sign of love. And Jesus said, I love you. I want you to return. And so subsequently in the rest of this letter, he gave us a command. He gave us an invitation and he gives us a promise. Here's what he says as far as command. He called us to be zealous. Jesus said, you want to return to me? Be zealous. Chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. If you don't want Jesus to vomit at you, be zealous. Be zealous. Be active in your pursuit of Jesus. Live like you actually care about your relationship with Christ. Be intentional. Be proactive. I think oftentimes when we think of being zealous, like, yay, like passionate, like just emotions. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Being zealous does not always have to be. It can be related to our emotions, but it doesn't always have to be emotional. But for the person who might be thinking, I'm never emotional, just just watch yourself, ask your family. When you watch basketball game. When you play sports, when you play video games, when you listen to a concert, there are some sort of passion in each one of us. But nevertheless, being zealous has nothing to do with emotion, but everything to do with maturity. You see, being zealous means that I'm going to do things even when I don't feel it. Some might think, oh, that's hypocrisy. But that's not hypocrisy. That's called maturity. That's called being a spiritual adult. Ask any newborn, uh, any mother of a newborn child that if, if he, if she wants, or dad, you feed at night, if they want to wake up at three o'clock in the morning to change diaper to feed a baby, I will guarantee you nobody would say that's the best thing that can happen to me. But you know why they do it? Because they pursue love for the child. They're responsible, they're faithful, they, they want to be, show, uh, be responsible and dutiful to the love that they have declared for the child. And so for us, we got to be zealous and be proactive to our, our, our love for Jesus. We got to stop saying, I'll do it later. We need to stop saying that when I get a little older, then I will, I will become serious with God. We need to stop saying, I'll become serious with God when, when I get out of high school, when I get out of college, when I get out of grad school, when I get a job, when I'm settled down, when I'm married, when I have kids, when my kids get a little older, when I get retired, or when I finish my bucket list of things to do, then I will get serious with God. Start with now. 
Be zealous for God now. Be zealous for God tomorrow morning. Serve him. Love him now. Live for him now. Don't wait till COVID is over. Then you become serious for God. Be zealous now and ask him to give you the strength to do it. It was Joni Erickson Tata famously said that there are only two gears in our spiritual walk. Either we drive, the gear of drive, which is moving forward, or the gear of reverse, to go backward. There's no neutral. The church of Laodicea was lukewarm, and they think that they were in neutral, but in reality, that upsets the stomach of Jesus that he wanted to puke. And so Jesus commanded them, to be zealous. But not only the command to be zealous, he also gave them an invitation to be for intimacy, invitation to be close with Jesus. Here's verse 20. That behold, he is speaking to this church that you want to puke at. It says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is an invitation for hospitality, for intimacy, Many of us are Chinese and we know food is utterly important in our relationship. That's why in Chinese restaurants, there's a circle table. It's the same thing back in the ancient Near East. Feast, eating, dining together is a sign of hospitality, a sign of intimacy. I remember when I was younger and in college, I was on mission in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, I was supposed to bring this one of the, the, the youth back to his house. So my partner and I, we brought him back to his house, thinking that we'll just drop him off, and then we're going to go pick up food back for the rest of our team who is on the other side of town. By the time we got into the house, the, the parents are, are profusely thanking us, and they start pulling us in, and next thing we know, we're sitting around a cha- on a chair in a dining table, and there are literally a table full of food, and we say, oh, no, 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 our team is, is waiting for us. They, they just insist because they want to show their love for us. They want to show their appreciation of what we've done for his or for their son. And it's the same thing here. Jesus is saying, I want to extend an invitation to you to be intimate with me one more time. To rekindle the love that you want you have lost. The lukewarmness, I want to heat you back up. I want to make you cold again because I want to give you a purpose for life. But notice, notice what Jesus did. Jesus was the, on the outside knocking. The responsibility lies in for us to open that door. And surely you think Jesus of all power, the faithful witness, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he could just bust that door open and come in and barge himself and sit at a table eat with us. But I love the picture here that Jesus did not do that. Jesus patiently knock and knock and knock and knock. And he said, the one who opens, the one who opens the door, the one who respond to him, the one who laid down and said, just come in. And Jesus said, I will come in to be with that person. And I want to ask you, when was the last time you had Jesus over for dinner? When's the last time you opened up as you hear Jesus knocking on your heart and knocking on your heart and knocking on your heart? When was the last time you said, Jesus, come in? It's messy. It's dirty. But Jesus said, no, 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 I don't care because I want to be with you. Let me clean you up. 
Let me bring you back and restore you. Finally, not only a command, invitation, he gave us a promise. Promise of true authority. Here's what it says in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We've seen time and time again this picture of crown and throne. And, and Jesus said, I prepare for you to reign with me forever. Just keep reading in Revelation. You know that God, Jesus will come back. There will be a new heaven and new earth. We will get to rule with him. But it will be those who will conquer, meaning not by own strength, those who abide and continue to stay with Jesus, faithful to Jesus, in love with Jesus to the end. That we are reserved that seed of power and authority that we get to share with jesus he sits next to the father to rule the world it was uh, jim elliott the famous missionary who shortly died after he went to the mission field but in his diary he wrote a very profound word that stuck with me and for many of us who have heard of it he says this he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot earn. Uh, he cannot lose. Let me repeat it again, my bad. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I think that perfectly captured what Jesus is calling the Neodicean and perhaps for you and I. That we don't get to keep our riches. We don't get to keep our health. We don't get to keep our status here on earth. And if that's the case, then lose it. Gain Christ, and you will never lose him. As we wrap up this series, I want to end on verse 22, the familiar word of Jesus to every one of the churches. And he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus called each one of the churches to pay attention to other people's letters. And I believe that is for a reason because in every church, while it is true of Laodicea, that many people in the church were lukewarm, but there potentially be people in Laodicea that is like Ephesus that are unloving. Maybe they are like, like Smyrna that were faithful. Maybe they're like Thyatira who's tolerating. They're like Pergamon who's compromising. There may be someone like, 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 like in the church of Sardis who are slumbering. Like Philadelphia, who's enduring. So, in every other church, I believe, for all, even for our own church, there are some of us that are sprinkled in by just like every one of these churches. I'm no prophet, and nor should I assume to be. I'm no son of the prophet, and as the saying goes, I only work for the nonprofit. But I think it will be safe for me to assume. That each one of us, as we walk through this series, God has put something in your heart. Whether a word of confirmation and uh, 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 commendation. And also a word of rebuke. I think it would be utterly meaningless for us to go through this. What we have ear to hear, but not pay attention to the things that God has laid on our heart. So here's what I want to propose to us. I want to encourage you this week. Will you just open his word and just read these letters one more time? 
And just carve out 10, 15 minutes sometime this week and just lay before him with these words, read it over and let the Spirit of God remind you, bring to mind the things that along the way he has given to you, he has put his finger on and answer the question, what do you want me to do now, Jesus? How do you want to obey? How do you want me to obey this? I want to encourage you to respond to God and beyond that, Repent before God. Because if there's one thing we've seen from every one of these letters, Jesus said, repent. And I think while we're at it, let's share with those around us, maybe in your small group, your family, share with them so that they can pray over you, so they can come alongside of you in your struggle. So will you join me as we pray together? Early this week, I came across this prayer by a missionary. His name is Steve Smith. He's passed away. But he wrote down this prayer of hunger for God. And I just want to use this prayer to close us and commit ourselves to him. So would you join me? Oh, God. You alone are our portion. You are the only inheritance that I want. How delightful are the boundary lines of my inheritance in you. I delight in you and all the portion you've given to me in my life. Father, will you show me your glory? Will you show me more of you? I want to see more of you. I want more of you, not just your promise. I want your presence, not just the presence that you give us. I want your spirit, not just the fruit of the spirit. God, be my treasure. Be my reward. Don't let me leave home. Don't let me leave wherever I'm going without your clear majesty in my life. God, help us to know you more, the power of Christ's resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Jesus, don't leave us like orphans. Come to me. We long for your presence. We long for it more than we ever thought we need you. So God, I pray that we will help us to delight in you more. More than the earthly things. More than the achievement. More than the relationship. More than the treasure. More than aspiration. More than interest. More than hobby. God, help me. Help us to be the man who found the treasure in the hidden field that we will sell everything joyfully to have you. Give me yourself. Help me to be hunger for you. God, I pray we will taste and see that you are good. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.